I'm Critter. I'm Jace. And we should be working. working. God damn it. It's one, two, (laughs) say it. (laughs) All right. I'm Critter. I'm Jace. And And we we should should be be working. working. I fucking hate you so much. Are you still getting new tattoos, Robbie, or are you done? Uh, it's been since before. Uh, so my wife and I have been together a little over three years, and I got my last tattoo just before that. So uh, then the pandemic. So I had knee surgery, then pandemic. then So I haven't had like a window where I could go comfortably get tattooed. And Amanda was my tattoo artist, Amanda Rodriguez from the Drupal community, for a really long time. And she now uh-huh. lives in London. Uh, so I lost my tattoo artist across the, so I keep threatening that I'm going to go to London just so I can get a tattoo, not to see her really. Um, but she was a good friend and I spent a lot of time in her chair. Like, you know, this was three sittings of six hours a piece at, at minimum. So the Joker, Damn. Dang, that's and gorgeous. Then the other side of that is all batman stuff. So there's of like, course. uh, so on my wall, I have a painting or a, a lithograph that is Batman standing in front of a headstone. And down in the shadows Are, is little Bruce Wayne and Thomas Wayne laying on the ground. So it's called the orphan. And what I like to say is these things down here make those things. And I love it. It's like my favorite depiction of Batman uh, because Batman doesn't have to be Batman if he had some therapy. Uh, but it just tells us <laughs> every human really just needs to like face their pasts. Um, so I actually got that tattooed on my arm in the in the reverse. So it's in black. I was totally going to say it looks like Batman standing in front of a suitcase. Yeah. Like the arms up. <laughs> and then at the top, we've got a little like bat signal here. Logo. Yeah. Yeah. But like, it's and all then, sort of, uh, it was fun to get, uh, but she's hurt me a lot. She used to make fun of me all the time for being a wimp and crying about stuff. And I'd be like, listen, you've tattooed me for well over two days of my life. Like I get to complain. Like I keep coming back. I get to, I get to complain about it. You mean crying about the tattoos or crying just in general? Uh, about the tattoos mostly. Uh, okay. but yeah, right. she used to make fun of me a lot. So do you cry when you get tattoos, Jace? Ah, uh, no, I mean, I, I find so it. You're not a wuss about it. Well, it, 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 it's a very good feeling to me. Like it initially just feels like a, a bunch of like small stabbing. And then after a while, it's almost therapeutic where like, it, it's just like the right amount of pain and like the noise is consistent enough that like I get into my own head and zone out a little bit, but I will say I got my elbow blacked out. Yeah. And, and that was the worst. And I had one of my friends doing this tattoo on me. And so, like, he just he went ham on it. He's like, oh, that hurts? Oh, okay, how about now? How about now? And then, like, he's like, oh, we have to do the elbow again just because he was, like, angry about something else. And he's like, <laughs> what is it about your friends wanting to hurt? Like, same thing happened to me. Like, so Amanda <laughs> uh, made fun of me because uh, I used to tell her all the time, like, part of her job was to shave my the area getting tattooed. Right, she's yeah. like, you lazy jerk, just shave before you get here. So yeah. I did, and I nicked my elbow right here, right, right at the... And then she tattooed it. There's a picture of her like oh. smiling ear to ear, tattooing into the nick. And I'm like, this is ter- you're supposed to be my friend. Like, what's wrong with you? It's licensed to be a little sadistic. Yes. I get that though. Like when I was growing up, I totally I loved any opportunity that I could find to hit my friends. A ball, whatever, you know, just anything. <laughs> well, yeah, but you used to play that game with your friends where you throw a ball up and try to hit each other in the nuts. Like yeah, the ball idiots. game. Did you did you ever play the ball game, Robbie? No. Uh, we we called it. Uh, I think back in the day we called it assies up, where you'd have to like <laughs> yeah. run towards the wall and and dodge as people were throwing balls at you. But like I, I played that. Uh, oh yeah, I think yeah. we called it wall ball. Yeah, uh, it was butts up for us. Butts in, up. Uh, <laughs> middle school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brooklyn. It was uh, on the streets. Tough guys. Asses up. Like tough you guys. <laughs> you grew up in Brooklyn. Oh yeah, born and raised from the BK. Dang, I didn't know that. He's from you New still live York. in the same place now that you lived like five years ago? Because it looks exactly the same in your background. I mean, it just is cool stuff. Uh, <laughs> I can move this. You just brought it with you. you. Uh, no, I actually just bought a house in January uh, in nice. Manassas. Congrats. So uh, in Old Town, where where Phase Two's offices used to be, is, mm-hmm. is about 45 minutes from here. So I'm about 40 minutes to D.C., on the express, like let them eat cake uh, express lanes that are like sometimes $2, sometimes $17. Uh, but uh, so that actually led me to the job I'm at right now, which is super weird. So uh, I, my wife works for treasury. She's a deputy assistant secretary. So I was like, Oh, let's see what the, what County jobs look like out here. And I sorted them by salary and then found that the highest paid one was actually the, it was going to be the 
software, uh, director of software engineering. Nice. So I was like, well, that's crazy. Uh, and then that was on a Monday and like a couple glasses of wine and it, the submission date was Thursday and it was like 1030 at night. My like, w- wife's walking by uh, the, the door and she's like, what's up? And I'm like, ah, I think I'm just going to submit my resume. Um, and, uh, so I submitted it at like 1124 at night or something like that for like a midnight closing. And, uh, and then they contacted me and we ended up going from there. Uh, and it turned into me being able to shape it a little bit into the director of digital services and software engineering. So that gave me a little bit more flexibility to be more of a utility player, less like directly only tied to like development management and oversight, but to give me a little bit more pliability in the role to like support digital services delivery sort of anywhere, whether that's helping in the PMO process or helping, like it gives me a little bit more play in that process. All right. So hold on. I have, I already have like, you know, at least five follow-up questions, but we, we forgot to do the intro seven minutes yeah. ago. We were supposed to do we, the, we just so, slipped right into it. <laughs> yeah. You're a new guest on this podcast, which means you have to give an elevator pitch about yourself. You get two sentences. Who is Robbie? Uh, long time technologist, who realized delivery of value and end users is more important than software creation. Killer. I love it. Yeah. See, I, I, I went from be good being a software engineer to sort of being more product minded. I think at this point in my career, I, I was a VP of product development at my last job. And now I'm sort of director of digital services. I work under the do it organization, the department of it inside of the County. Um, but I think they, their pitch was that they wanted to create a digital services org um, so they wanted me to bring sort of what I've done in government and, you know, to government, to their government, which I thought was super cool. So I, I care more. I've said this, uh, like when I was leaving the, so, uh, for those of you that don't know me, I work for the United States digital service, which meant I worked for the executive office of the president. I got to do a lot of stuff in government. I was part of the, what they called the startup inside the white house. And, uh, what we did there in, in a lot of ways was that we tried to bring exterior, out of government viewpoints into government. Um, and we also had buy-in at uh, every agency team at USDS actually had buy-in either at the CIO level or the deputy secretary level. So that meant we had high level buy-in in an agency. Um, so that allowed us to move a little bit quickly and, and get things accomplished that would be harder if you didn't have that type of buy-in. Um, so I think what's interesting here is trying to take that same model. So I'm now like talking to the CIO and, and the deputy CIO about the fact that like, in this case, we probably need more buy-in from like the county executive board, because that's sort of the overarching leadership. So trying to talk through how we can deliver more value and get more uh, accomplished if we have a little bit more like o- oversight and buy-in from our leadership, which in this case would be the county executive board. As you've transitioned more into product and, and more away from engineering, have you ever worried about losing your edge or like not being one, one of us, you know, with engineers, all that kind of thing? <laughs> one of us. Um, I, I mean, I still, uh, for probably the last decade of my career, I've done more like tutorial work than almost actual work. Um, but, but I always sort of try. So, I, I, you know, one of the things I did for a long time is I ran and, and was supportive of a lot of communities. And the thing that I would get asked a lot because I was either a director or things is like, how do you learn and how do you like oversee people doing the thing? So for me, it's like my first question to you is always going to be like, how do you learn, right? Like you have to know yourself. So for me, I know that like I'm an oral learner, right? Like I do much better with like podcasts. And, and the example I would give is going all the way back to learning Drupal, right? The Lullabot podcast way back in the day in its first incarnation was basically describing, right? The nomenclature and verbiage, right? They would talk about Drupal. And, and once you know the nomenclature and verbiage, you now know what questions to ask. Or when conversation is happening, you can understand it. And then the or next step for Google. me was watching videos, right? So like at that point, it's patterns and paradigms, right? Like, so hopefully whoever's doing a thing, if they are knowledgeable and are trying to teach somebody how to do something, will use other things as representative. So if you were doing this in Java, it would be like X. If you were doing it in Rails, it would look like that, right? Like, so what's cool is what is unique about the thing you're learning Hopefully somebody's giving you some context and the more things, you know, the more context you'll be able to pick up from that conversation. So like the first time it's not going to be super helpful, but by the third video series you watch, right? Like the first time I I learned about node, right? Like I was already experienced in rails. I was already experienced in Drupal. I was already, so like when they got to the point where they were like express actually uses the middleware pattern and I'm like, boom, got it. I under, like, I'm hundred percent on board. I didn't have to learn that. Right. So that was a short circuit for me. So like I immediately was able to build like node 
express REST APIs in like 20 minutes, right? Like, because that was right there in front of me because that's the way they described it. So, you know, it's, it's really, uh, so I, to go all the way back to your question, I don't feel like I'm that worried about losing my skill because I know if I need to, I can drop back down. Um, like even my personal laptop right now has Docker. Uh, I was playing around with uh, Java Spring Boot because it's something that's used a lot in like the government ecosystem, but just running through sort of building out like base REST APIs using going through a tutorial and getting that set up and then running it in Docker locally, right? Just a, enough to be able to be in the conversation and to be able to ask questions when when I have them, you know, like of people who have more experience. Do you, do you ever miss that tangible sense of building something and shipping it and like you made this thing that's out in the world? Um, I think it's interesting. I do from time to time. Um, like right now, I've wanted to play around for a long time with building like a personal CRM. So I think I want to do that myself uh, for me and for my wife. I think we're we're really interesting use cases. Uh, me now, because I founded a business and and my business is consulting, right? Like I have a full-time gig. My, my main client is Prince William County, but I, I am a big networker anyway. So I think it would be interesting to take like ultra connector personality type and build a CRM around it. And then my wife, who has deep connections across government, and, and to use her as a secondary user with a different set of use cases, but treat it like a full-on product. Like, I, I want to f- build a backlog of all the features I care about, and then interview her a- about the things that she would like to use, and then start to build it out. So I'm not sure what I'm going to build it in yet, but I would like to build it in something I haven't used before, because I feel like it'll give me the opportunity to play around with something. And I not because I have a ton of free time, but also because I think it would be fun to learn something new. You know, like, uh, I I think that's the thing I miss the most is like when I was doing a lot of development, I felt like I was constantly learning. And now like, I feel like my learning has stalled, but it's different, right? Like I have to take pride in, like, I I joke right now that my jobs, my, my number one job focus is asking the question of why, like, why? Like, why are we evaluating another project management tool, right? Like, haven't we done this before? Like, so that's a lot of my job, but my job used to be like, let's figure out how to solve this problem. But I get a lot of satisfaction out of like driving value, right? Like, I know that if I wasn't sitting in the room, we may not, we may have bought yet another tool to do a thing, right? So for me, my pivot has gone from like building the thing that I get to tangibly build to providing value in this case, to the constituents of Prince William County, to the people who live here, to the businesses that are here, right? Like, so, and making sure that we're approaching things in a way that I feel like is equitable and is moving moving the entire county in the right direction. And efficient. Yeah. Yeah, efficiency is a big thing. So, like, you know, and, do you, well, yeah. just, just kind of to interject here, like, would do you even think that you would have to learn anything new? Like, isn't it mostly just learning like a new framework at this point? Because I mean, you, you like you said, you know, you know Ruby, you know JavaScript and Node, and yeah. you, you did Drupal so as PHP. Like, you you want to build something like Django and, yeah, and well, learn some Python it's, or something? It's interesting. Or? I think the one that I've always been intrigued by that I'd like to play with a little bit is is Laravel, only because it sort of <laughs> merges sort of I'm some of the right stuff. Now. Yeah, I had heard yeah. that in one of the least recent podcasts. But Laravel yeah. is one I've always found interesting because it's sort of PHP has moved forward in a really interesting way that I both like and don't like, right? Like what I liked about the same, the same way I feel about TypeScript is the way I feel about PHP today is right. Like JavaScript had its issues and then a lot of them were resolved in ES 2015, ES 2016, right? Like as we moved forward in the spec, TypeScript brings to the table type safety and things like that, that you don't get. But the problems that TypeScript was trying to solve when it was being brought to the table and CoffeeScript most of those initial issues have been resolved in the spec. And I feel like PHP, what I liked about it was its loose nature and it felt more like JavaScript. But now PHP feels like PHP 5 and Java 7 have had a love child. And there you, you go, have, yeah. what is PHP, right? Like, right. And, and I don't hate it, but it doesn't look like the PHP I know how to write or I've written in the past. So, it, you know, I, I think Laravel might be an interesting one because I like the patterns that they've stolen from Rails, right? Like the generator patterns and, and all of that. And I think it could be really neat. And also I, I always love the idea of migrations, having the ability to sort of reset the world pretty easily. And I think that pattern of migrations in Rails always really worked well for me. 
I, I, I don't love Rails. I think Rails is like black magic and voodoo. I often joke, like, I would like to know where this code is that's actually making this happen. But like, that is what you get in the middle for of free when you use Rails, right? Like every once in a while, I would be on a Rails project and be like, uh, how do you know what the menu link is? <laughs> and, and you're sitting next to a Rails person and they're like, oh, it's just this. And I'm like, how do, how do you know that? And they're like, uh, I don't know. Uh, I've been doing it for a while. <laughs> and I'm like, well, when did you start knowing that? And they were like, I don't know, like two projects, three, three projects. Like, it, so for me, it always felt like it was this nebulous. You have to have this inherent knowledge that is super weird. Whereas like, I think, you know, Laravel might be an interesting one because it sort of steals some of those things I really liked in Rails and brings them to PHP. And it would give me a chance to play around with modern PHP, which I haven't done before. So it's either that or probably Java Spring Boot only because it's one I've been around a lot in my government time that I actually haven't gotten to build anything with. So, you know, really Java Spring Boot is inherently like a, a nice way to build APIs in Java, you know, and there's a ton of ecosystem. It's like, you know, when you first were exposed to like .NET's framework, you're like, there's a lot you get for free. Same thing in Java. But like Spring Boot is like taking Java's like base library and going like, Bleh! like you have this huge ecosystem, right? Like that just unfolds in front of you. It's like the Drupal custom, you know, contrib module ecosystem, except like built out for the enterprise, right? Like Pivotal Labs has been sponsoring sort of Spring Boot as it's, as it's come up through the world, but like it has been adopted by many large scale enterprises, so that I think created this really interesting ecosystem of tools. And, you know, it's the, it's the idea of like, you know, it's all annotations, right? Like a lot of what you get in Spring Boot is these annotations. So you build the thing and you're like, that is a transactional thing. And you're like, Whoa. well, your model is directly mapped to a table. And you're like, oh yeah, right. And then you're like, wait a second. If it doesn't go through, it rolls back magically. And I'm like, we're back to magic, right? Like, so that's why like Spring Boot makes me laugh because I'm like, you get a lot for free, but like, uh, it's uh, weird. So I'm sure I will run into that in, in Laravel. I feel like there's, there's got to be some magic that the framework is bringing to the table. So I look forward to be ma being mad at it also, but like maybe, yeah. maybe building a thing in it to see if it's fun. I mean, MVCs are always fun to build stuff in just because it, you don't have like as big as a CMS essentially. Yeah to work with and stuff. Everything happens much quicker. You don't really have cash or anything, especially out of the box. So, mm -hmm. But I think it'll be fun. Like, I, you know, I, I don't know that I'll ever stop writing code. I think I will stop writing code that goes into production um, or production for a company. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I have, you know, the thing I, that I'm really interested in is, like I've said, is like value, but like the end user and, and focusing on making sure that what we're building is the right thing to build. So like a big part of my day is like, Asking, like, have, I know you're a subject matter expert, but like, have you asked a user, right? Like, how, how do we know this is what is actually going to make this work? And there's a bunch of really great books that like, uh, really, uh, I loved that got me to think differently, like inspired and, uh, what's the second one? Empowered are the two books by the Silicon Valley program, uh, product group, SVPG. And those two books are fantastic because it's really about like product mindedness and then like product minded teams, like empowering when you get to product, right? It's not just a person who is a product manager, but like the titles that they often talk about are like product designer and product engineer and product manager, right? And that triumvirate is like what makes a fully featured product team that can go off and do a thing. And, and you know, it's so sort of taking that cross the cross functional team, but like empowering each one of those heads of that piece and that team to be responsible for the product. So go off and do the research and go off and decide if the technical solution is correct and go off and make sure that the end user is a part of the process and make sure that it's also meeting the business needs. And right. Like, but the, that trio is what really makes and, and creates what they call empowered teams in the, in the second book, which I think is really cool. So you, uh, that's a segue to something I've been wanting to ask you about, which is, well, okay. First of all, have you ever worked with a uh, platform team, an infrastructure engineering team? Uh, yes. So when I was at the VA, um, I, when I was part of USDS, every it's a flat organization. And when I went in there, I joined and we were building, um, we were prototyping, building a uh, replacement for a hosted PDF. Um, so the hosted PDF was, it worked in Adobe Acrobat 7.5 and below and Internet Explorer 8.0 and below. Uh, but it, it like lied to you. If the version of Adobe Acrobat was wrong, it would tell you to upgrade your browser so like, not only was it bad, is it was actively lying to end users. 
And what you don't realize when you start to think about those types of problems is veterans, especially homeless veterans, would likely have to apply for these benefits in libraries. And the libraries were upgrading past those software, right? Like they were end of lifeing those softwares, even in public libraries. So there was going to become no way for a homeless veteran to apply for those benefits. So we built a quick, we, we built a React front end and a Node back end to talk to a SOAP API, right? Like that's really all it was. But we hadn't used React before. We weren't sure what we were going to be building in at the VA. Um, so the team decided they wanted to use Node. And I was running the Node meetup here in DC. So when I joined, they were just like, you know Node? And I was like, yeah. And they're like, we have developers on this team that have never written Node before. And I'm like, cool. What, why did you choose Node? And they were like, because we think it'd be fast. And I was like, okay. Um, and then I got there and there was like no testing in place. Like not because they didn't, they weren't good engineers because they just didn't know how to do it in Node. So like one of the first things I did was like my first PR was like to put in a testing harness and to write the first couple of unit tests. And then I like did a lunch, like a lunch and learn where we all wrote tests. Like by the end of that first lunch and learn, I think we had like 20 something tests that were done over a lunchtime, which was super cool for Damn. the team, but they all understood how to write them then. And then like, it all starts with like true equals true, right? Like, Right. And, and going from there and showing them how to write the test and then showing them how to abstract. But like when we were building this, what was interesting was we built this Node API um, and then a contract was put in place for the API for vets.gov, which was the project I was working on. And they the decision was made to use Rails for that. So I was fine. I, Rails, Node, right? Like they, they for API endpoints, Rails was totally fine. Um, what we didn't realize was there was going to be larger data sets and some streaming, like because the data was so large that we got lucky. Um, some of our inter interstitial layers of like caching, like we had an Nginx layer in front of our Rails API, and that actually did a good job of like allowing files to get to Nginx before they moved forward. So it didn't block the CPU cycle on the Rails. So we got nice. lucky in some of our choices. But if I was moving forward, I would have loved it to be Node because we could have spun up a billion little Node instances and for everything, right? Like Multi it would have been super everything. easy. They're all stateless. Who cares, right? Yeah. Um, but in that end, uh, I ended up being asked what I wanted to do next after we built this, this like healthcare application. And there was a lot of things on the table I could have done. So they asked me and uh, what I finally decided I wanted to take on was I became the API lead, uh, the core team lead, which was responsible for the APIs for uh, vets.gov at the time, and then eventually va.gov. And it gave me the opportunity to like oversee and help uh, apply pressure across all the teams that were building stuff for vets.gov. So it gave me the ability to sort of be the wet blanket and ask the questions and make sure we were doing it in a way that I felt like was going to be good. I, I mean, there's a lot of things that came out of that. I think the one big plus for me is that we like never had a security vulnerability that caused any data to leak right in the time I was there. So it, it worked out. We, we did well, but like it also created some really fun situations. One of the things uh, I ended up having to do is we were building separate rails apps and they were going to stand them up and orchestrate them. And I found that like they were on different versions of rails. They were using different gems to solve different, different problems gems, yeah. because the teams weren't communicating, right? Like, so right. I wanted it to be microservicey because I thought that would make a lot of sense. But in the end, we were having communication problems. So this is like one of my favorite moments is I spent a lot of time talking to everybody, hearing everybody out, and then came back and said, we're going to turn this into a monorail and we're going to collapse all these things into one place. And the reason we're going to do that, I told leadership, is because we're going to fix a people problem with a technology solution. Your teams aren't talking to one another, right? You have three implementations of how to talk to SOAP APIs right now. We need to consolidate. And we need to do this and they need to talk to one another and we can't get the teams to because it was contractors, it was people, it, not because they weren't good people, but because they were all working on different things. So if we forced them into a single code base and into a single monorail, they would have to talk to one another. So then they were seeing one another's code. They would have to do code reviews against one another sometimes. They would be putting in pull requests that affected another API. So like it short-circuited a communication problem and made us, and I put the person who was sort of the most... Uh, I think probably the best Rails engineer that was working there, his name's Alistair, uh, and he was pro microservice. And I made him the guy to collapse everything. And he was like, you know, that's kind of a jerk move. And I was like, yeah, but you like understand the solution, but also like you'll do it right because you don't like, it, right? Like, I know you will clarify that this works because you're a good engineer and it's, it's not your choice, right? Like we as a team came to it and 
I heard everybody's opinions. It's, you know, my dad used to joke that like our household was a, a, dem- a democracy run by a dictator. I got to be in that position for a little while, right? Like, and and what was good about it is like, I was able to convince the team and get everybody's feelings assuaged and all their concerns by us making this choice and saying like, we'll revisit it in a year. Like I'm completely okay, right? And that's sort of like, I, I know like Critter, you you and I have talked, we talked a lot when, when you reported to me about like how to manage people. But I think one of the things I often love is saying like, cool squeaky wheel, the rest of the team is okay with this. Let's come back and see if this is still a problem in three months, right? Like, wh- how are you, you hate the linting defaults? Well, the community is using those. But like, if it still bothers you in three months, like we can we can have a conversation as a team. And in three months, you've gotten used to it, right? Like, same thing happens here, right? Like with the team like spent a lot of time machinations about how this was going to be terrible. And then it launched and it worked and, and it was, it's still live. Like, you know, like it's, it's been live now for four and a half years, you know? And uh, that, that's the best part of that is like that one choice in that moment um, allowed us to move forward and, and everybody can complain, but like I had one-on-one conversations with every engineer to make sure I knew when they were going to argue about it when we got to the table. We had a meeting with like 28 people around a table and a bunch of people on video. And I knew what every person at the table was going to say before they said it. And then so I had just- an answer, right? Like, or I would say like, but like, you, sh- hey, Critter, didn't you think this would be a good idea? Like, I could be the sort of secret puppet master. Like, hey, Jace <laughs> thinks this is a good idea, right, Jace? Like, and and then you, I right. also was able to bring the introverts to the table who may not have said it themselves, right? Like, right. So, That's awesome. Yeah, I, I did. So I did work on an infrastructure team with APIs uh, and, and uh, did a lot of that, which it was really fun. That, I enjoy uh, that, you calling multiple Rails projects into one a monorail. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know why. I've just never thought of that until you said Yeah, that. It's, it's a shorthand, I think, in the Rails ecosystem is at, when you have like a giant Rails app that they call it a monorail. But it's always one of those things that makes me laugh because it's like monolith. But like, nah, it's a monorail. Right. Yeah. yeah um, just singular. Yeah, it's 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 one. It's it's one giant rail. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that whole that whole solving a people problem with technology is interesting. I mean, like I'm down with Conway's law and the whole idea that like technology kind of represents the the work plan and you know, if you if you create a team then they're going to own their own thing or whatever. But I've I've only seen it work in the other direction. You know, I've seen like people create smaller teams because that's what they want the apps to look like. I've never I've never seen people create a giant app because they wanted teams to collaborate. That's super interesting to me. Um, what was nice was it, it collapsed like three teams into one team effectively, right? They were all, they all had their own responsibilities, but what they didn't realize is they were going to have to talk to one another. And then I also implemented sort of um, architecture reviews. So like if you were going to build a new thing and it, and it was going to be something that we already had done and it didn't meet your needs, you had to explain why. So yeah. I wanted people to come to the table and say like, I need to interact with SOAP. I know you're interacting with SOAP the ox gem is not going to solve this problem because I don't like how it does X. Well, I don't care if you don't like it. Can you do <laughs> it? Right. And and if you want to move to something else, you have to prove to the team that the other thing is, is better, more efficient. And then we have to put a ticket in the backlog to migrate the existing solution to the new one. I, I'm not going to be okay with having multiples of a thing. Right. Like, and that was sort of my mandate when I started working on that stuff. Well, especially with like, Rails, Ruby on Rails. I mean, you got to be careful with what gems you use and like all that shit too, because dependency hell is is real, especially in that technology. Yeah, I think anytime you're sort of pulling publicly created modules or or chunks yeah. of code, like it can get really hairy. You know, like sure. when I worked at Sony Music, like my the worst thing that ever happened was that the artist. So you, Sony wait, is an umbrella. You also worked at Sony. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I, I was uh, I was the manager of interactive media at Sony. So I was responsible for, uh, I was DevOps, automated DevOps before automated DevOps was a thing. I was the only person that did deployments and it was all via SVN and rsync. And uh, and I did all the upgrades of all the Drupal 5 sites to Drupal 5 to 6 to 7. And then eventually Frank Carey came in and took over as I was leaving to go to Zagat. Did you did you ever like work with Superstar and Bloom's company? Oh yeah, back when they oh okay. totally yeah. So so you're from that that old era. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So uh, when I started, there was eight eight people on the team. I joined, and Dave Burns and Jared had both been at Sony, and they went across the country because they were going to work for a new company, and that company got acquired as they were on their trip across the country, and then they yeah. went to Lullaby. 
right? So like okay. I got a chance to work with Dave and Jared for a week before they left. And then Roger Lopez joined us and Andrew uh, was there. And so the team was small. When I got there, there was like 11 people. It was like four developers, two ads people. And then we merged that team into the larger design team at Sony. And they, at that point, they were like, and Susie Arnold was the boss uh, when I joined. So Susie's awesome. She's still working in the ecosystem. She's one of my close friends, but an amazing human. And when we joined the teams, they said, we're going to be like a startup. We're going to fail fast. We're going to fail often. And we never acted like a startup again. When it was like 12 of us, <laughs> we like launched sites at like four o'clock on a Friday with a beer in our hands. And like everything was fine. Like Roger and I used to jokingly do a uh, Friday afternoon, 30 minute modules for stuff that we told people no. So <laughs> I, at that point, I, I wouldn't have considered myself a developer. I was more like my background was like IT. So I was part Drupal person, part IT person, part like sys engineer, sys admin. So they ended up when I got hired there, I think they merged two or three jobs together, A, to be able to bring me in, but B, because like they knew my skill set. So what was really fun is uh, I think the, my favorite one was like John Legend. They wanted a modal of a video on the site. And we were like, no, nah, we don't have time for that. And then like on a Friday, Roger and I grabbed beers and we sat down and we were like going back and forth about whether or not it could be done. And like two hours later, Roger had created sort of the skeleton of a module and uh, and it worked. And then by like Monday, he had worked on it. And, and what's awesome is I wasn't writing code. All I was doing was pressuring him to do more things. So I was like, right. Captain Scope Creep. So like I would sit there and just be like, <laughs> you know, if we just added a checkbox for whether or not this needs to be every time. You're just the pusher. Yeah. And then I'd be like, well, what if we did it every third load of the site? And he's like, but that's not even what we talked about. And I'm like, but like, wouldn't that make it a better product? And he's like, right. yeah. So like, I, apparently I was product minded even back then, but like, I just would drive him crazy and we would sit there and work on. And what was great is like those conversations led to modules that worked really well at Sony, but then ended up back in the ecosystem. But by us sitting and doing that kind of stuff, we did it for fun. But it also like gave Roger the ability to like work on cool stuff that he wouldn't have worked on because he was bogged down in the other stuff. You know, right. and every once in a while, it's fun to have a little project that you can work on where you can highly focus and build it, in, you know, three or four hours. But like cycling, he, he wrote the code for that module. And I think we joked about it. It was like, I forget what this number was, but it was something like the order was like the first pass of it was like 160 lines of PHP, right, in a Drupal module. And then the second, and then it added in like three new features and it got down to like 120 lines of code. And then like the third iteration was like 98 lines of code and had like, six features, right? Like, so it was super fun because every time we would revisit it, he would be like, and I used to joke that he was a really good engineer and he's like, no, nah, I'm just lazy. I don't want to write it again. And uh, that was, that was one of my favorite things about Roger Lopez for sure. Well, that's, that's, I mean, that brings up the, I, I think I've said it before, Bill Gates quote, where like, if you give some, a complex problem to a lazy person, they'll find an easier way to accomplish it or whatever. <laughs> it, it's something along those lines. I, I butchered it a bit, but it's, it's that sentiment. Yeah. All right, hold yeah, on, critter. hold on. Platform teams. So, yeah. uh, so oh, yeah, here I met. Uh, yeah, I manage a couple platform teams right now, and it's uh, it's an interesting situation because it's like our customers are the other engineers. Like our customers yeah. aren't end, end users, um, which puts product. Your customers in, are end users. They're just different kind of end users. Yeah, they're end users that are reachable on Slack and are on the same payroll <laughs> as us. Um, and so it puts product in a weird place, right? Because like if product has to be very, very technical for a platform team, given yeah. that all the engineers are the end users. And, and it also they're at a disadvantage because the engineers on the platform teams think like, you know, why, why do I need a product manager to tell me what's important? to build for my friends and coworkers who I talk to every day. Like I'm, I'm closer to these people than a product manager. So it's like, do we need an engineering minded product manager or do we need a product minded engineer, you know, to be kind of like playing out this role. And that's the, the constant battle that I go back and forth on. Yeah. I, I think, think it's a ladder, right? So I think my problem with giving it to an engineer is they will sometimes get frustrated and just want to do it as opposed to running yeah. the product side of it. True. Right. Like, and I think that's concerning because uh, in the end, what the product person's job is, is to balance out the needs of the business. Right. The the resources of the team. Right. Like and, and also the end users needs. Right. So there's a weird triumvirate that I think every single product person has to go through. And they have to sometimes like we used to talk about this in the when I worked at J&J, we said that like product and project managers inherently are going to always be butting heads, 
right? Because the project manager wants more things and the product manager wants to do the right thing based on the feedback that is coming in and what the, the, the tech lead says they can do. But the project manager is just like, don't care, let's get it done. Um, and I think if you put an engineer in that role, they will sometimes be able to call BS on what needs or doesn't need to be done or that something is taking longer or that this is over-engineered. But I think what you lose is that person who is going to ask and categorize insights in a way that is actually valuable to the engineers. I don't expect any engineer to be able to take good user feedback and turn it into actual stories. Whereas a product engineer, a, a product manager should be able to do that. And a product designer, right? Like you might not need a product designer on here. What you probably need is a senior architect that can actually work on the structure of the APIs and the platform that that can fill that role in a traditional product environment, right? Like they should have insight into where this is going. You should have somebody who has governance and oversight, compliance, right? Like those pieces, which are all like hated words by engineers, but like they need to, there needs to be somebody who has that ownership and it gets, gets to enforce it, you know? So like, you know, style guide on your code base or like, right. But like doing that for the architecture, somebody has to have a vision for where this is going. Right. Do we version the API in the URL? Do we do it in headers? Right. Like there's so many different aspects of how something could be done, especially if you let a team run off on their own. Um, I think the bigger one here is having someone that can partner with a technical architect who is technical enough to work with the stakeholders and work with the end users to be the facilitator. Right. Because you as the engineer might be able to say like, I'm going to call Jace and say like, this is dumb. I want this to be working this way. But what Jace might not know is there are other teams that are going to use this that are going to have different, slightly different requirements, right? You don't want to have REST API endpoints that have 80% of the same data being shared across two or three endpoints, right? Like that's, that's the worst case scenario in that environment that you end up standing up individual API endpoints for individual teams as opposed to talking about like the abstractions, right? Like, do you build out a single API endpoint that that grows over time and has branches, right? Like that can bring in the, so is it more GraphQL-y than RESTy, right? Like, because mm-hmm. you can do that, right? Like you can build a REST API that branches, right? That can have right. different things you bring in and you can write individual queries to each one of those. So it looks more like a GraphQL query in the end than it does a REST API query, but it's multiple REST, REST queries, right? Right, like the think uh, user slash name and then user slash date of birth, right? On the same, right? You can get down to the point of like user slash date of birth slash year, right? Like you can pull one data point if you really want, if you architect it that way. But now you're getting to the point where it almost looks like a GraphQL request, right? Like you're, I want the, I want the year the person is born so I know how old they are, right? Like, right. That that's that's a different way to approach it, but not the engineer that is being asked to run the product vision may not understand the implications of all of the end users. I think they're not inherently the person I think is going to know how to how to gather all of those requirements and validate them across all the end users. So not that I think engineers can't do it, right? Like I was a longtime engineer that is more product minded. But I think in the end, the most effective thing here is finding somebody who is a multi-hyphenate who may have been an engineer who's become a product person or is a technical product person would be the right answer. Because I, I find that when I was at USDS, the people who were the most effective were the multi-hyphenates. Like I worked with a product manager uh, who was uh, who was absolutely positively an engineer beforehand. And what was awesome is he would, he would just act as though he was just a product person. And then he would get on calls and he'd be like, that's BS. That's <laughs> Robbie. I just want to validate like that shouldn't take that long. Right. Cause like if I was doing it, I would, and it's super funny when you can like hide that away and just be like, yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And then he, he can call it and I can back it. Right. Like, so it's an interesting balancing act of having the right person with the right knowledge, but also has enough discipline to fulfill the role of product manager. Cause that is, it's a different skill set than engineering. That yeah, that, that little tangent reminded me of uh, Ellie Power. She yeah. she spooked me one one day because uh, I was on some Rails project, you know, Phase Two, and um, I had our stand up. It was really small. It was like me, and Brian, and Ellie, and then the client. And she she's just like, "So, 
Jace, are you working on blah, blah, blah and doing this, this, the other? And I mean, it's in the ticket. So she's kind of just reading the titles and like telling what I'm doing. And all I said was like, yep. And then she like went on to explain in detail what each thing meant to the client. Because I mean, I was still early at phase two, so I didn't really like elaborate or talk on calls as much. So she like went and explained exactly what I was working on and what I was doing and how I was doing it. Because we had talked previously. I was just like, oh yeah, Ellie, you were a developer at one point. That totally makes sense. <laughs> oh yeah. She's, She's amazing. Boss. Yeah. Yep. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I think I'm with you, Robbie. I think it's uh, it, you're. I think you're right. It's just a different different skill set. I think there's a big difference between like knowing your users and then being able to actually take all this user feedback and boil it down into like a prioritized list of user pain and and generate well, it's a specialization, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, exactly. That's yeah. that's what the UX teams are and strategy teams are usually. Well, and honestly, like it, it, in your case, you're probably not going to have a lot of user research, right? Like you're not going to have a person whose title is user researcher sit down and, and investigate, right? But I think right, what you're going to have is you're going to have surveys, you're going to have, right? Like, so it's just different, slightly different tools, but not something that an engineer is likely going to be able to distill down into a product vision, right? Like, because the product person who's going to be working on this really does have to understand what is it we're trying to accomplish and this feedback and then merge it into this is what the vision becomes, right? Like, over time, it needs to evolve. And I don't know that most engineers have that like inherent ability just because they haven't done it or haven't been exposed to it, right? Like I think product management is such an interesting uh, path in, in for almost everybody. I So one of the things I love is, and I, I, don't, I think it might be an inspired where uh, the, the person who wrote it talks about the fact that a product manager is basically a CEO with no power, right? Like <laughs> you're responsible for delivering a thing and you have That's... no power to deliver the thing. So- What's awesome is good product managers are basically being trained on how to be a CEO when, and then they'll have power, right? Like, so it's an interesting like approach to thinking about what product managers are. And that really changed my uh, approach and the way I, I thought about it. I also was lucky enough, like at USDS, we worked in fully matrix teams. So literally every team had a minimum of a designer, a product person, an engineer, likely procurement support. And if we needed others, specialists, so there was always at least three people on the team. And that meant I got, to, I got to work with like people who were willing to come to government and bring their experience from outside to the government and, and probably relatively high level, minimum five years of experience for most of those people. But we got people from great places with lots of great experience, right? Like I got a chance to work with people, like not to say you had to come from like a high fluting company, but we when we interviewed people, we looked for people who would be able to do this job in this weird environment and had the breadth of experience to be able to succeed or at least have enough experience to know when they don't know the answer. Like I said, a lot of times when I was interviewing people, my approach to interviewing engineers at USDS was not about you being the greatest engineer. It was if, if you, if I was taking you to your first meeting with a secretary and there was a product person and a designer, and I got a phone call that said I had to leave, would I feel comfortable with you sitting and representing the engineering community of practice, right? And that doesn't mean you have to have the answers. It means you have to under, you have to have situational awareness. You have to understand how to communicate with somebody at the level of a secretary, right? Like you have to understand the gravitas of that room. You have to understand that you're going to be asked questions you may not have the answer to and, and know how to say, I'm not sure, but I will look into it and get back to you and be okay with that, right? That is a hard thing to do in front of somebody like a secretary, right? Like, you know, I, I was lucky enough that like I worked on stuff and got to um, when we worked on Vets.gov, we added identity. So there was a sign in to it. And and when we did it, um, I got to demo it and help Sec De Deputy Secretary Sloan um, log in for the first time. And he said very pointedly when I so it's me, the tech lead for the entire platform, uh, a product person and a designer. And I'm sitting with him and we're going back and forth. And he goes, well, why did we have to create a new login? Didn't we have logins? And I was like, yes. And he's like, so why did we make people create a new login? And I was like, because the other ones weren't secure. And he was like, we made veterans go for like drive for five hours to get in-person proofed. And I was like, yes. And he's like, this is more secure. And I'm like, yes. He's like, so we kind of lied to veterans. And I was like, well, I, not actively, but like the technology that was being only used knew what at the time- knew. Right, didn't actually yeah. meet these requirements, and also the technical requirements had changed. The specifications for authentication, right, and there was more approaches to it. 
So when, when it came down to it, he was like, well, can this be used across the VA is an interesting animal because it's three organizations in one. It's the VHA, the health world, the benefits world, VBA, and NCA, the national cemeteries. So those three agencies are, they all are kind of separate under one umbrella. And he said, well, this work across the board. And I said, it kind of already is. Like when you log in, if you have medications, you can go look at your medications. And if you have like GI benefits, you can look at them, you can get a status. And once he saw that like this login kind of unified things in a way, because the to go back to the platform, the end user at the VA was never actually doing the work. It was an abstraction. We were doing it on their behalf. So they would log in, we would look up their information Um, There's a system internally that is basically a correlation ID engine. And we would say, based on the criteria that we know about this end user, I need all their correlation IDs so I can then go to those systems and look things up. So what was awesome is our API was making those requests on behalf of the end user. The end user was never internally communicating with anything at the VA. So what, what that allowed us to do was to abstract that away and we could work on whatever correlation ID and any systems correlation ID once we knew who the user was. And that was sort of one of the first times that that had been done effectively. And that was when like Deputy Secretary Sloan said, like, you, you may have changed how veterans interact with us. And I was like, that's our hope, you know, and, and that was really cool. But that's the kind of thing when I was interviewing engineers, like, could I expect someone to be able to sit in that room with whomever it was, right? And, yeah. and me feel confident that they're going to be able to answer questions, represent effectively what USDS's values are, right? Like, so that, that really worked well for me. Um, and that's sort of a part of the process for, for that world, you know? And I think the same thing, I got to work with these amazing people who all went through that interview process, right? Like, so every product person I worked with at USDS went through some similar interviewing process at USDS for how they would be calibrated. And uh, I think, you know, when we go back and think about it, like, you know, the amount of people that made it through the interview, I think it was less than 10% of the people that applied to USDS made it through to an offer. And that's pretty common in in a lot of companies. But if you think about it, this is a self-selecting group of people that are willing to come to DC who have the type of experience, right? Like it was an interesting group of people. For sure. Sort of civic-minded, EQ-forward engineers, designers, product. So I often joke that like what we didn't talk enough about at USDS was that like we had created like this Rolodex for one another of some of the most like EQ forward, civic tech minded humans that are going to eventually become CMOs, CEOs, CTOs around the whole country, right? And around the world. Like we have this really amazing network of people that are part of US. Social network. Yeah, but like yeah, yeah. It, now we're also connected to the other technologists that were around at that right. point, right? Like under yeah. the Obama administration, we have like back channels and like it's just really nice that like this group of people is interconnected. So like I think that the product mindedness is really something that I learned a lot while I was there because I worked with people who really helped bring that to the forefront. Like work with really amazing designers that understood how to take a user research session and turn that into requirements and then work with design to then put that in front of engineering to take all of that and go back under the product management world and, and think about the vision of what we're trying to accomplish. You know, We were talking to Brian Asnar like a month ago on the podcast yeah. from MLS, and he was totally, talking a lot yeah. about how uh, about how he's tended to gravitate towards like problem spaces that he's passionate about, like solving problems that he actually cares about. Um, all your government work, all your veteran work, is that is that how you've ended up there? Like, are these things that you're passionate about or is of course it How's is. That happen? Yeah, I think question, if you know uh, this man, <laughs> uh, I think the interesting piece is uh, the beginning of my career, I worked for the city and state of New York and welfare. Right. So I spent my first like five or six years working for the state in the Department of Social Services in the welfare space. And then I moved over to the city of New York and then I worked for what was Human Resources Administration. So I worked rolling out an application called the paperless office system. So it was using the underpinnings of the welfare system on this on the state side. So I had this inherent knowledge from my six years supporting it on the help desk of all the systems that this was going to talk to. So I was kind of built in a pressure cooker to move over there and help. So I went over and helped lead the team over there as we rolled it out into the agencies. So we, we ran the paperless office system in the welfare centers. Um, at the time, they were transitioning them to what they were calling job centers. So once the paperless office system went in place, it was basically a power builder application wrapped around the welfare system, COBOL system, 
and and did a lot of initially screen scraping and did all kinds of crazy stuff. Did you say Cobalt? But, oh, yeah. Zephyr. <laughs> okay. Zephyr was the actual application Jesus. that was written on. Yeah. Uh, so what was cool was like I worked there and I spent a lot of time in the welfare centers. And I feel like it, it's a lot when you work in the welfare centers every day. And I was transitioning to new centers and helping them roll out these apps. So it was me and, and a couple of other people, often a guy named Derek. We were some of the first people in the building for the new application. So it was like building those relationships, getting to know the security guards, getting to know the welfare center employees, getting to know the center directors. Um, but it's a lot, you know, when you're in there and you're hearing the stories over and over again of like people who are trying. I used to say all the time that the two hardest jobs in a welfare center are the person applying for welfare and the person who has to decide if that person gets welfare, right? Like they're both very complicated emotional jobs, right? And and when you work around that, like you're under people's desks, you're you're fixing a, a signature pad that isn't working at somebody's desk while they're trying to capture signatures, like so they don't have to do this again. You know, like there's a lot that goes into that. So I did that for a long time. And I, I realized then I went off to work for Sony, right? That was my next job after that. And then Zagat, and then uh, I got acquired by Google. So like I was, I did all those things. And, and then I realized that like the, even though some of my time in the welfare centers was hard, it was some of the most impactful stuff I had done. So then like, if you remember back to when I joined, like I went from there to Johnson and Johnson and then from there to IDT. And then I finally joined phase two, which was sort of like an ugly duckling coming home. Like I had known phase two and Treehouse earlier, right. From my time at Sony, I worked with everybody in Treehouse at Sony music and then like Frank and company tried to hire me a couple of times, things, different timings, right? Like when the right. superstar acquisition happened, I was talking to Frank, right? Like there was a lot of conversations that were happening, right? Um, and then what's really cool about it was like, I read a blog post about USDS and it was Mikey Dickerson, who was the administrator, wrote about healthcare.gov. And he said, he walked in one of the first days and he asked like, how do you know when healthcare.gov is down? And they said, like, we turn on CNN and if they are yelling at us saying it's down, it's down. And he was like, we know how to oh, monitor man. things, right? Like, not yeah. not like we know how to fix this. And I love that approach that I, I probably told you this when I originally was leaving because, you know, I wanted to make sure you understood why I was leaving Critter. But like, that was it, right? It was like, oh, we can solve small problems that will add up to big solutions and we can do, I can take my tech skills and I can help America. Like, that's cool, right? Like, and, and that's what I realized. And then when I was done with USDS, my tour of duty ended. Um, I was a Schedule A employee. So you do two years and you can re-up for two more years. I then joined a company that was a member of the Digital Services Coalition, which at the time was 16 companies, which is now like 21 companies that all try to do good government technology delivery based around the digital services playbook, which is something that USDS wrote on, in the Obama administration, right? It's it's these plays, 13 plays on how to deliver in, in technology. Put one person in charge, right? Like things that you would think are simple, but like in a government contracting ecosystem, it's not because that's not the way they've done it, you know? And not to say that they're wrong. It's just that this has never been done or hadn't been done in government up to that point. Or solutioned so in a proper way or anything. Yeah. And yeah. then like, you know, I still use the sticker because it's one of my favorites. Like this is the six values of USDS, right? Like nice. it's on my current notebook. You know, it's it's hire and empower uh, great people. It is find the truth and tell the truth. It is optimized for results, not optics. Go where the work is. Create momentum. Design with users, not for them. Right. Like those six things are what I did at USDS and they will be with me forever. It's probably one of those things I will get tattooed on me. Those six core values are super important to me. Right. And those six core values basically inflated into 13 plays. So what's cool is those companies in the Digital Services Coalition are companies that are doing digital services delivery in government. And they want to do it based on the way that it was done by USDS, 18F and the Presidential Innovation Fellows sort of the modern approach to how to deliver in government. And that was utilizing the digital services playbook, which is out in public. It's playbook.cio.gov, right? Um, and what I love about that is like, that really shows that there is a good path to how to approach technology solutions in government. And it goes back to that original blog post, right? Mikey saying like, we know how to monitor things. And once we monitor things, we know how to capture logs. And then we can look through logs and we can get metrics. And then we, right. So it's, it's, it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs for computer programs, right? Like it's really all yeah. it is. 
And and that is the S it's in the SRE book because like that's literally Mikey was an early Google SRE. So like that is a pyramid that exists, right? The first thing you got to do is know when it's up or down, right? Like, and uh, what, what people don't realize is if you know if it's up or down, you can then tell the secretary. So when the phone rings and the president is calling to find out what's going on with healthcare.gov, the question isn't, is healthcare.gov down? It is, we know it's down and we're working on it, Right. It's changing the story, right? It's a it's a small p politics game of understanding how to communicate and make people feel more confident. And that's the thing I really loved about all of it. Like USDS isn't a magical organization. It was good people who cared about doing the right thing. But in the end, like we helped transform how people communicated in government, right? right. Like we were able to say, because we had buy-in from people that these are the things that we should be doing. And we had enough buy-in from the agencies and from the White House and from the deputy secretaries or the CIOs to to be listened to. You know, sometimes we were the bad guy, right? Like it's easy enough to say like USDS said you have to do it, right? Like there's maybe a person who's been trying to get a thing done for a decade, right? So we would bring people like we didn't have the answers. We were digital service experts that didn't make us subject matter experts, right? So we would go and go to the and interview the people on the ground. This system seems like it's broken. Do you have any idea what's going on? And they'd be like, yeah, we know it's this. It's a query that's using an Oracle database and we're dropping some of the unique identifiers on the floor. Well, we can fix that. Well, it's going to cost X amount of dollars under this contract. The, the vendor's no longer around. All right. So like, we'll we'll push for that. It's fine. We, we can get yelled at. I, I'm okay getting yelled I have broad shoulders. Like I can get yelled at. It's fine. You know, and that, that was a big aspect of what we did, you know. Do you, do you think you need that to be happy? Could you ever be happy in a job where you didn't care personally about the problems you were solving like that? I, I don't know. I think it's really hard for me. I, I think what's really nice about where I think I'm heading is I want to provide as much value as I can across the board. And it, value is the thing that's it's nebulous, but also like something I believe in heavily. Right. I want to make sure that like if I'm helping a company think about how to approach a procurement or how to build a community of practice or Right. Value is whatever that value is in the moment. But I think my my long term goal is probably to do more management consulting at at many organizations. I want to I want to go and help people figure out how do we deliver better? And no matter what angle that is. Right. Like if it is to build, you have the wrong structure in your organization for how your engineers can communicate and everybody is defeated because they don't have a commonality. Right. Like one of the things I did while I was at Pluribus Digital is I helped them. I was brought in as the VP of product development, but my job was to help stand up the communities of practice. So like I actually brought in and we had like lunch and learns and we had like community of practice meetings for engineers. So there was a back channel. We created Slack channels for engineering, for design. Right. And there wasn't really product at the time. And one of the things I think that they're moving towards and in government, there's product is like the last piece of the puzzle. A lot of the times you'll hear program or you'll hear product project but you won't hear product. So we have a lot of people that were secret product managers, right? Like a program manager or <laughs> a business analyst, right? Like when you start to break down what good business analysts do, it's like they're the utility player that pulls it all together. Well, sometimes they're helping out with wireframes or they're in the room for a user interview or they're right. Like secretly they're like the product manager on the project, you know? Um, so what, what's cool is I, I was there and then, um, I had reached into one of my communities and Vishal Iyer joined and he was an 18 effer who was a designer and he joined as the director of product design. So like together he started standing up the design community and I was standing up the engineering community. So like providing value, right? Like I wasn't doing a lot in the government agencies, but I was giving insight. I was asking questions. I was connecting tissue, right? Like, and that was providing value in that instance or helping with procurement related things. So like I was doing a lot with our VP of strategic growth about teaming, about evaluating RFPs to see if it's something we wanted to go after. Right. Like, so there's a lot of different ways that value can be ascribed. I think as long as I feel like I'm providing value and helping improve the value creation, that's what I care about. Do, um, did you have a hard time, I guess, realizing that you still provide value once you stopped coding? No, thankfully, uh, I've been in enough leadership roles that um, I and, and maybe have a, an interesting balancing act of imposter syndrome and confidence uh, <laughs> that it. really helped me move forward, right? Like, I know that I don't know a lot of things, and mm -hmm. uh, that really helped me. Um, I said it to somebody, uh, I'm on a, a board of the Hutch Studio. Hutch is uh, an incubator that is trying to help 
um, uh, underrepresented entrepreneurs build digital services delivery organizations. So I'm on that. And in one of the conversations we had this week, we're interviewing new cohort of people. I said very pointedly to somebody like, I, I'm lucky because I have privilege and I know that, right? I look the part of a programmer, right? Like I, if you look yeah. up in an urban dictionary, geek, right? Like I'm it, right? Like what, with I all like the Batman tattoos. stuff, I, I don't understand. <laughs> so I used to give a talk about imposter syndrome. And one of the things I talked about is like, we need to step, step into privilege for a second because like, I know I have it, right? Like I, I look the part, I sound the part, I sound... Com- so my joke is like, my parents love me too much, right? Like... I, I look like I, I can grow more facial hair than I can hair on my head, right? Like my eyes are terrible. I like tattoos, right? Like these are all bad. I'm a chubby dude, right? Like I, I'm a caricature. But in the end, right, imposter syndrome, I, I joked, was like the honey badger of feelings. It just, it did not give a shit about my privilege, right? Like, and, and I had to be okay with that. Like, but because I know about my privilege, I also know that I want to be transparent about where I am. So a lot of times when I would get to the edge of my knowledge, I would be upfront about that so that others felt like they could, right? Like this is where my knowledge ends. I've been doing that for a long time, trying to create like safe ecosystems. And because of that, I feel like it made it less painful once you've been through it a few times where people look at you and they're like, you should know this. And you're like, I don't know this. It's, it's, it's okay to not be, uh, you know, delivering all the time. Um, and then you have to get, you have to get fulfillment out of the happiness of making people happy. I had a lot of conversations when I left USDS with a lot of CEOs. And one of the things I said was like, if you can't understand that I care more about the happiness of your people than I do about your bottom line. And if you can't see how that makes your company more money, I can't help you. Right. Cause people who are happy, who are doing their job tend to deliver better, but they also tend to stick around longer. Right. Like you guys have talked in the past and some of your podcasts about like the cost of transition. Right. Like if people leave an organization, you've not just lost their current knowledge, you've lost the opportunity cost that it's going to take for three or four people to get another person up to speed. Right. And that's a big part of it. So if I know that I can go through an interview process and get somebody in, great. If I go through an end of year review with somebody and they're happy because they've delivered a bunch of stuff and they feel valued, right, they're less likely to leave, you know, and that is that is a win. There's a value there. Right. Like you can say a lot about phase two. Phase two is an amazing organization where people stick around, that people stay there a long time because they felt supported, right? Jeff created an organization that felt like they cared and they did, you know, like if you were in the VA office here in Virginia, like Jeff would just walk around and talk to people. It was different than other companies I've been a part of, you know? And like, that was cool. That's what made it so hard for me to leave, right? Like not just the amazing people that reported to me, but like, I felt like I was part of this company, you know? And I feel like a remote first culture company, like a phase two is an interesting right. ecosystem that others should pay attention to. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, we could probably go down a whole rabbit hole on that one, but as soon as like COVID hit and being like a remote first company and then dealing with all our clients who were not remote first companies and all, all that stuff. That was yeah. a lot of fun. All right. Well, we're well past an hour now. So I have one more question. Is there uh, is there anything you want to share with our audience of 12, whether it's, you know, plugs or, or whatever? Anything else you got on your mind? Uh, I think, you know, the big one is there is good work that can be done anywhere. If you think you would like to do good work in government, there's tons of ways to do that. It doesn't have to be in the federal government. It could be at the state level. It could be at the city level. Right. There are organizations out there that you can join. Code for America is a thing that provides a huge amount of value to lots of places, but they also have local brigades. So Code for America has brigades that you can be a part of to help your local communities, right? Like Code for DC is one of the most active ones and they do an amazing amount of work and you can build your skills, right? So what I think I missed when I, growing up in New York and then being here in the DC metro area is that government, when you see it from a distance, just looks like a monolith right? Like it just looks like a giant organization. It's made of people, right? Like when you get to work in government, you realize it's just a bunch of people trying to do their best. And I think what people don't realize is that is everywhere, right? Like I just joined four months ago, Prince William County's like do it organization. It's, it's a bunch of people trying to make it better for people in their communities, you know? So if you're interested in helping and, and sometimes like growing your skills, um, I've, I've had a bunch of conversations with people about like breaking into civic tech, 
breaking in is just sometimes being the person who applies or showing up, right? Like it's amazing how much people are willing to get the help that you offer. It's like going into communities, right? Like I've run a lot of tech communities over time. People ask all the time, like, is there anything I can do? If you offer to do a thing and it's all volunteer and you can take a thing off my plate, bully on you, Mike, it's all yours. Like put out sodas, right? Um, That's the kind of thing. And it's an all hands on deck situation. I think the same thing goes in civic tech and people don't realize it. You know, like everywhere you turn, the government is is right around the corner, right? Like I'm currently at the county level, but like there's state level organizations, there's county, there's cities, right? Every one of them has technology behind it. COVID showed us that, right? Like you needed to get a COVID vaccine. You needed to find out what the status was, right? Like we were all looking at graphs of COVID numbers in every state and every county. And guess what? That data comes from a person. The demographer in Prince William County's name is Brian, right? Like, and I'm talking to him about how he can use census data, right? And it's, it's, it's everywhere. You don't realize just how many technologists there are right around your ecosystem that you can be a part of. Robbie, I miss you, man. <laughs> I am happy to do this whenever, my friend. Uh, you you both are amazing humans. This this podcast is really funny. Uh, and uh, after you reached out to me, I went and listened to a bunch of them. And I think uh, Bloom is probably one of my favorite humans on the planet across the board. doesn't matter where, because Agreed. hearing him rant about stuff from such genuine I give a shit is something I miss so much. I don't think yeah. I've ever met anybody who has the same level of like, I give a shitness that I do. And then I met Bloom and I was like, he, he exhausts me. Uh, like, <laughs> oh, yeah. His energy's in the room. Speaking of which, but I'm I- late to a meeting with him. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Nice timing. He's like, the, you're going to be um, in trouble. Nah. <laughs> he's going to he's gonna hug you to death. <laughs> he's all he's all hopped up on coffee just saying, they'd be like, I'm waiting for you. Join this meeting. No. <laughs> but I think the big one here is like, there are so many things you can do and you have, you have the skills to, to help. And people don't realize just how many things they can be a part of. You know, local tech communities, civic tech organizations, you know, every state is in America is standing up digital service organizations, New Jersey, California, right? Colorado, they're they're all out there. And there's an amazing like movement that is happening in America right now. And it comes out of like the momentum that was created with 18F and USDS and the presidential innovation. If you go look at the people starting and standing those things up, it's a bunch of my friends, right? Like Giuseppe is yeah. doing it in New Jersey and, and Kelly is doing it in Colorado, right? Like, um, and there's great work being done all over the place. The Aspen policy organization, right? Like they're just everywhere, you know? And and if you're interested in it and you think you'd like to be a part of it, uh, reach out, grab me. I'm Robbie the Geek everywhere. I will happily talk to you about any of those stuff. Sweet. Shoot Sweet. me some links if you want and I'll put them in the show notes. Okay. Cool. It's a it's pleasure. Great, Robbie. It's always fun to chat with you guys, and it's even uh, cooler to do it after all this time. I miss you guys. Yeah, it's, yeah, been, it's a been a while. <laughs> we'll Happy weekend, again. y'all. See ya. See ya. Have a good one. Bye.